I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Before we get started, just a heads up that this podcast contains a couple of uncensored shits and f**ks. So listen to something else if you're easily offended. I'm Lisa Gebulagan, health journalist, boxer, whiskey appreciator, who will soon be allowed to enjoy an old-fashioned again. And this is Holy Shit, I'm Pregnant, an uncensored podcast for first-time mums-to-be. Just like me. The anxiety usually starts with a thought. A what-if that spirals into the worst possible scenario. The fear spreading through my body until it stuns me immobile. And that's when you'll usually find me staring at a wall. The other day, it was a reaction to the news that my placenta hadn't moved. It's not uncommon for women to find out at their 20-week scan that they have a low-lying placenta. This means that the placenta is covering all or part of the cervix. Most people don't worry too much about it because for 85% of those cases, the placenta moves away from the cervix as the uterus expands with the growing baby. I'm only a few weeks out from my due date and my placenta is still, and I quote, covering the exit, as one of the sonographers put it to me. I really liked that phrase, so I've kept on using it. The official medical term for what I have is a complete placenta previa, and it means I have to have a cesarean because the baby can't get out with the placenta in the way. I've been lucky in that I'm asymptomatic. I haven't bled at all. The doctor hasn't needed to put me on bed rest. The hospital didn't give me a lot of information on the condition at that 20-week point, except to tell me I wasn't allowed to have sex in order to prevent any bleeding and that I couldn't travel more than an hour's flight away in case I needed to get to a hospital quickly. In any other year, that travel ban would have been disappointing, because I imagined myself baby mooning at a mixed martial arts camp in Thailand. But COVID had already poo-pooed that idea anyway. So after my recent 34-week scan, when I was told my placenta was still covering the exit, I headed back online to find a few trusted medical sources I'd read previously about the condition, so that I could arm myself with information at my next hospital appointment. This time though, rather than helping me feel informed, I couldn't get past the worst case scenario. You see, there's a high risk I'll experience a massive hemorrhage during birth. Massive hemorrhage being the actual medical term and not an example of a creative flair in my writing. So I started thinking, well, what if that happens? Which then spiraled into, what if I bleed out to death? And then what if I never get to meet my baby? And what if Brad has to bring her up all by himself? It sounds so dramatic saying it out loud, which is probably why I haven't said anything to anyone until now. But those were the thoughts that were going through my head. It only lasted a couple of minutes. When I realized what was happening, I shook myself out of it. Literally, I shook my head as a way to physically dislodge the thoughts and I decided to instead focus on what was real. My baby is healthy and growing really well, even if she is wearing the placenta like a hat, which is what Brad said it looked like when we saw diagrams of placenta previa. And I'm looking after myself as best as I can. Whatever happens in the future, I'll deal with it then. But I'm not going to worry myself sick over a million different possible scenarios now. So this isn't the first time I've had to rein in anxious thoughts during my pregnancy. 
And after chatting with a range of women for this podcast, I know these emotional challenges are something many of us share. And that's what this episode is all about. The strategies that have helped us get through, the expert recommendations on what we can do, and how to recognize when we need extra help from the pros. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's such an uncharted territory, right? And and it's really a rite of passage. And it's, I think, very normal to have that sense of anxiety because you don't know what's happening. And so often we don't, you know, have people who we can look to to give us personal advice. Um, and so we're consulting message boards and forums and Dr. Google and that kind of thing. And I just, it just tends not to be that helpful. But, you know, I think it's so great to be noticing that now and to be noticing, you know, what is causing that sense of anxiety in you and what are sort of what are the circumstances around it? Because what I find is that that will increase after you have the baby. That's Caitlin Katie. She calls herself a hope dealer and meditation junkie. I think of her as the incredible woman who managed to write a book on meditation, build a meditation app. It's called Heavily Meditated, look it up, and run a bar in Byron Bay while also being a mum to three little ones under the age of six. I know, it's insane. If anyone had a few good ways to manage worry and anxious thoughts during pregnancy, it would be Caitlin. That's why she's one of my other go-to experts. The thing about anxiety that I've noticed is that it's a hungry beast and it just always wants you to feed it with more. So it wants more bad news and more worrying information. And if you've ever like gone down a rabbit hole on like a pregnancy forum or a fertility forum or any of those places, like it's it's not really like full of happy stories and you can kind of get trapped into this like spiral of seeking more of the information that's making you feel horrible. Can you relate to that? Yes, I can. But it's interesting though, like when you talk about not feeding that anxiety mentally, for me, it was my mum, and I know she was coming from such a good place. But when I first found out I was pregnant, she was like, please, please promise me you won't ride your bicycle. I'm like, what do you mean you will not ride my bicycle? She's like, because of the way the seat is. So my family, our background is Filipino and there are lots of superstitions. Right. And She's like, don't do this, don't do that. And I was like, mom, look, I'm anxious enough. I can't, I can't have you feeding Feeding this. Yeah. What I'd love from you is just some support. You know, that's what I really need right now. And I think that's what would be best for the baby. And I was glad I had that. I was glad I had that conversation with her because then after that, she calmed down a bit, but I still wouldn't tell her when I was exercising or riding my bicycle because I didn't want to hear her freak out. Yeah. Yeah. So wise though, because what I, what I hear you saying is that you set a boundary with her and whether it's with people in our lives or it's with social media or Dr. Google or whatever, we have to be mindful and discerning about, about those relationships and set boundaries and, and sort of understand that there's a difference between equipping yourself with useful information and arming your anxiety with provocations, right? So there's a limit to how much more information is useful. And what you did is said, this isn't actually helpful for me. And you express that and set a boundary. And that's incredibly wise. And I think that if you can take that into the online world as well, where some people may not have um, 
a family member that's sort of issuing those provocations, but they might be, you know, Googling a symptom or, or this or that. And I think that's where it can get, it's a slippery slope. It's a, it's a testing ground also for when you, when the baby's actually here and you're going to get a lot of unsolicited advice (laughs) and being able to set a boundary is, you know, whether it's with yourself or with other people is so, so helpful. And then I just, of course, want to touch on meditation because we're talking about anxiety. And I know as a new mom, it, like you just feel all consumed. And, and I think that if you can begin a practice when you're pregnant, it will serve you not only through your pregnancy and through your birth, but also in the postpartum period, because even just a few minutes of breathing, whether it's three minutes, five minutes, seven minutes, it can, it can feel like that's all the time you'll be able to steal in the, in the very beginning. It can go such a long way. And just giving yourself a moment to soothe your nervous system. You know, we want to sort of soothe and counterbalance the hypervigilance and meditation gives us with patience and resilience and self-compassion. And we really need all of those things. And then another thing that it gives us with is intuition. And, you know, this sort of circles back to where we started the conversation, which is just advice, whether it's from well-meaning family members or, you know, online forums. We as mothers need to learn to trust our intuition and to trust our instincts and to first turn inward for advice before we turn outward. And I think that meditation helps us not only trust ourselves more, but also hear ourselves more clearly. The other thing she recommends, sharing how you're feeling with other women just not the ones who fuel your anxieties. Who are the people that you can trust with this, that, that you can not only confide in, but whose advice you trust. And I think having, you know, a handful of people to call on, not only is it amazing for you, but I think that what I found is that like helping other women navigate this new territory is a delight. Like I love when people call me and go, what did you do about this? And what did you like? I love it because it was, <laughs> you know, it's uncharted territory that you are sort of exploring and to be able to maybe make it a little bit easier or help someone else sort of chart their path forward is what's really missing from our society. And that's why we're turning to the internet is because we're not forging those sort of connections in our personal relationships. So I think that, you know, asking people, even though it might you might feel like oh i'm bothering them or whatever but i think i think people and particularly women really want to share their experiences and really want to talk about them i feel the same way and i'm so grateful that i have a few friends who are happy to share their experiences with me too here's lucy for a lot of my pregnancy i didn't allow myself to be happy because i just didn't like happy joyful with the fact i was pregnant because i just was so convinced it wasn't going to happen you'll remember lucy from our first episode Lucy had made peace with the fact that she wouldn't become a mum after going through three failed rounds of IVF, an experience she likened to being in a casino. In a wonderful surprise, she fell pregnant on holiday. They weren't even trying. She was really excited and then the anxiety hit. To be honest, that first week that I found after I found out I was pregnant, I spent a lot of time in bed, kind of just flat, like really flat, because I just I felt the crushing, overwhelming anxiety of what happens if something happens to this baby it just it just flattened me and obviously I just I knew because at that point I was 39 um, and I had my 40th coming up and I just knew that 
um, the risks associated with that age and, you know, with everything that had happened, I was really worried about doing the, um, the gene test to see if there was any gene mutations. I was worried every time we did a scan. <laughs> like it's, So that first week, I think it all just came absolutely crashing down on my head. Um, I, when you know when we finally kind of got the blood test results and I you know talked to my gynecologist and he started saying uh, obstetrician he started saying okay where are you going to give birth and that's you know for anyone that's become pregnant that's the most bizarre thing that anyone will ever ask you it's mm. usually very early on and it's usually your obstetrician or a midwife or, so, or a nurse someone that you've seen and you think what are you talking about? That's like nine months away. Or yeah. like, what, is that? what does that matter? And it's those kind of decisions that you have to start making so early on, which, you know, in some ways just make it real. But in other ways, if you have a miscarriage later on, make it super hard. Yeah. I, from the outside, I seemed very calm and very happy and, and everything, but I was super anxious. How did you end up dealing with that anxiety throughout your pregnancy? So uh, it was something that my naturopath said to me, and she's one of those people that could be 50 or could be 21. I've got no <laughs> idea. Like her skin's amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. But she's very she's, wise. She's so wise. Yeah. And she said, the best thing is to control what you can control. So there was all these things like giving up coffee. And I, so I was that mum that was particular about raw food and particular about my caffeine and, and, and didn't eat too much sugar. Because she said, like, I just remember her words, which were control what you can control. And if you're not doing that, why risk it? And I was thinking, yeah, why risk it? Like I tried, this is three years and $35,000 worth of, you know, treatments Mm. later on. Why risk it for a cup of coffee? So, you know, like everyone's different. And I've had friends that were also 40 that took a long time to get pregnant and they ate everything from chili to coffee and like they have perfectly, perfectly healthy babies and it didn't affect them in the slightest. So I think looking back, I think it's that's one of the ways I could try and contain my anxiety yeah. by saying, okay, well, that's all right because I'm not having caffeine, so everything will be okay. Yeah, I'm not gonna. I'm gonna say no to that chocolate cake because I don't want the sugar. So that's okay. So I think you know. And and since having a, a, a baby, one of the things I really understood about myself, which I never understood before, is that I like, I like control. It's why I never really got into drugs and alcohol. Like, sure, I did what everyone else does, but I just never. It just never took off. I was never really interested in that because I never wanted to lose control. And I think throughout the whole process of being pregnant, there's so many things you can't control, not only from like your kind of, you know, medical treatment, but to what's actually happening in your body. And you're Mm. like, oh, my God, that's so weird. There's an alien inside me. But it's like one of the things I could myself control is, is, you know, looking after like her from the outside. Here's my friend April, who you met in the last episode. April says she never felt more beautiful than when she was pregnant, but at the same time, she had to still deal with constant worry about the safety of her baby. Oh my gosh, I was so anxious during pregnancy and it worsened as it went on and I started therapy actually as a result because it was Mm. getting really bad and the anxiety was mostly, I just kept picturing myself as a pregnant woman getting hit by a bus or falling off a cliff or something happening to me that would therefore harm the baby um yeah wow and it was just so constant 
And uh, luckily I had a friend who became pregnant around the same time and she was reporting this similar stuff. She just was having these ridiculously violent (laughs) thoughts. Um, And so, yeah, I talked to my therapist about it. She's like, you know what, that can be quite common. She's like, that's your monkey brain. Just try and not indulge or, um, like, think too much of the thoughts and just, just identify them as, oh, that's my anxiety flaring up, that's a monkey brain thought. There's no need to, you know, dance with it at all, just acknowledge and, and keep keep going about my day. So I guess that helped, um, but that was really surprising because I don't think I had been anxious in that way before. I didn't think I'd been fearful in that way before of my own safety. Mm. Um, but suddenly because I had, like, another being within I was like oh I really need to be the protector so almost every time I crossed a road actually I was having some kind of um anxious thought which is which is a lot (laughs) was it hard to you mentioned the kind of way she taught you to approach it but was it hard to do that in practice um no actually it was like almost like flipping a switch as soon as she said that I was like okay as soon as I saw it like that and I heard her, like a third party say, yeah, that tends to happen, um, I was like I much more forgiving of myself and, and easy on myself about it. And it probably did continue, but to a lesser extent, like maybe I'd have a thought, but then it wouldn't balloon into, you know, 10 other disturbing thoughts. Did it help practicing that during your pregnancy then when um, you gave birth and you had this little baby to be looking after? I'm carrying on what my therapist said about just acknowledging these thoughts. Um, yeah. And I'm not trying to berate myself for it. It actually happened to me in a shopping centre maybe like three or so weeks ago. I was with my mum and she was minding the baby while I had lunch. And and I just thought, oh, this sounds so bizarre, but I'll say it anyway. I just thought, what if like my mum gets plowed over by somebody and the baby falls down five stories of the shopping centre. Like it's Mm. really, really intense to think such things. And I got, I I had, um, I had followed that, that thought so deeply that I actually started to have trouble breathing. And so I thought, okay, April, get a, get a grip. You've just got to breathe this one out. And so I just took some deep breaths and I was okay. And, I went to go find them and they were just in a clothing store looking at, at clothes. I just, yeah, it's just something that is ongoing and I probably will continue to, to deal with and have to work on. Um, but mm. I, I guess I hadn't heard anybody um, express similar, at least in my friendship group. What you're saying there kind of reminds me of when I interviewed Claire Bowditch and she, and it helped me with my anxious thoughts as well. When she has thoughts like that, she's named it, she's named it Frank. So she's like, fuck off Frank, you know, (laughs) like really. So in that way, it kind of separates those kinds of thoughts from you giving it a name and being like, thanks. Thanks, Frank. I understand what you're saying. You're trying to look out for me and my bub, but no thanks, yeah, we're good. Off. Yeah, yeah. I've heard this concept. I like that a lot. You give it a name, like Judy or something. Yeah, like Judy. Appreciate yeah. it, but fuck off. Yeah, cool. <laughs> Judy, I, I could try that. <laughs> I don't yeah, know give it a go. And this is Josie, my old work buddy, who now co-hosts the podcast. The zest is history. 
Josie spoke about how hard it was going through a miscarriage in our first episode, and that loss led to more worries when she eventually fell pregnant again. I had to have a scan early and not everyone has it. It's like this six week kind of scan. And I had had that the first time because I'd had bleeding and then ended up having the miscarriage. And the first time I had it, they said, oh, it's, they said it was like two weeks younger than it was. And I knew that was wrong because like I'd been tracking my period and stuff. And that wasn't a good sign that it was so small. And then the second time they said, oh, it's like a week. Like they changed my due date by a week. And I just started freaking out. They're like, that's very normal, like for it to measure a little smaller. But I just freaked out. And because it was an internal ultrasound, I got home and I had a fair bit of pain. And that had happened the first time. Like I'd had horrible cramps and then ended up having a miscarriage. And so I was just freaking out. I couldn't go to work. I remember messaging my boss who didn't know I was pregnant and just saying that I had terrible cramps, which wasn't a lie, but she took that as period pain. But it was actually because I'd had that ultrasound and I was just crying. I was just like, it's happening again. It's happening again. And then it didn't. And then I just kept thinking like, oh, like even when we started telling people, I kept thinking, oh my God, have we jinxed it now? Like, and then I remember being at my friend's kid's birthday party and there was another girl there I said oh yeah I'm still a bit freaked out I was like probably 25 weeks pregnant by this point and she goes yeah but now like you know it's cooked like (laughs) if something happened you would then go to ICU and you could get the baby out and it was just so practical what she said I was like Mm. oh yeah she's right like you know it's very very rare for something to go wrong at this point I mean it still could but then you can kind of intervene and you know, get the baby out and try and help it in ICU. So then I kind of relaxed, but it took me to like 25 weeks to relax mm. fully, I guess. So what did you do in the meantime to help you manage that anxiety? I remember just my dad's advice, which I always try to take with me in life, is that worrying is our least useful emotion. He's a psychologist, so he's a very practical person. (laughs) And, yeah, he's always just said worrying doesn't achieve anything. I remember the first time I was lying there worrying. I still had a miscarriage, so (laughs) it didn't help at all that I was lying there worrying. So then I just tried to do, you know, the best that I could do and just I've got a busy job, so it was good to focus on work and things like that and stop, like, thinking about it. But I think when it started moving – and you could feel it kicking, then I felt better and I felt more connected to it and I would talk to it. I named it Spud. Spud. And, yeah, I would talk to Spud all the time. And I remember there was a day I didn't feel Spud move and I was kind of like, mm, I should probably like maybe call my midwife, but I didn't want to be like that person. And then I was in a meeting and felt Spud like kick the bottom of my tummy and I just <laughs> burst into tears and my boss was oh. like, whoa. And I was like, wow, I didn't realize I was so worried about it Yeah. until that kick happened and then I just felt so relieved. But yeah, I think with the kicking, it just really helps because you've got that like physical reminder that everything's okay and it's alive in there because it's so strange. It's just like this thing's growing. Your bump kind of grows or maybe it doesn't grow too much because some women don't have a huge bump. And then you have these scans but they're really far apart. <laughs> and then it's yeah. just like is it okay in there? Like what's happening in there? It's almost like you don't stop stressing until that thing is out and it has – 10 fingers, 10 toes, they do their little tests. I think that was a moment where I was just like, oh, okay, I did that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and then you've got the rest of their little lives to stress yes. about. Yeah, totally. I had that um, 
realization in one moment. I think it was quite early on in my pregnancy when I was freaking out and I was worried about potential miscarriage. I remember feeling that anxiety and then thinking, oh shit, this is just the beginning of the next, I don't know, however many decades of anxiety (laughs) for this person. (laughs) Yeah, it's full on. My dad always says like, you never stop being a parent. So he goes, he's still always on my mind. I'm still always worry about you and think about you. And I'm like, great. <laughs> so it's like <laughs> for at least four decades of worrying yeah. about. According to Dr. Nicole Hyatt, founder of COPE, the Center of Perinatal Excellence, up to one in five women will experience anxiety during pregnancy and after birth, while up to one in 10 will experience depression during pregnancy, increasing to one in seven after birth. So that for some couples starts at the very beginning when planning to have a family and finding that um, becoming pregnant isn't easy um, and that can obviously lead to emotional roller coasters going through IVF etc. Then pregnancy for a lot of people brings many challenges. Birth can lead to many unexpected consequences and post-trauma and then the postnatal period as well. She says there are a whole range of emotional and mental health challenges which people face, like dealing with gender disappointment, body image, unexpected news at ultrasounds, abuse, perinatal loss and traumatic birth. Whatever you're facing, to start with, the key is acknowledging how you feel. She uses the example of gender disappointment. It's it's natural to experience that if you really had strong hopes uh, for a particular gender and then you find that that's, that's not the case. And having to come to terms with accepting that, and that is a process in its own right. But I think quite often, you know, you can imagine for someone who can't even get pregnant, uh, that feeling of just be grateful that you can even have a baby. And because of that, that makes people who might be uh, experiencing gender disappointment feel that they can't really talk openly or honestly about the way that they feel. But it is a reality, you know, life is filled with ups and downs and there are disappointments. And I think it's important to acknowledge and by by doing that, it, it allows the person the opportunity to experience and express the way that they're feeling and move that through that process of accepting or making a decision about what they want to do. It just removes that feeling of guilt around it. Whereas if we don't talk about it, we don't write about it, people don't have that information. It's almost like they feel like we've got to, got to keep it inside and not really have that opportunity expressed for fear of how others might judge them. Part of accepting and moving through that process is having that opportunity to talk about it and realise that the way you're feeling is warranted and it's okay in order then to to move through it. And what about dealing with loss or unexpected health news about your baby or even about yourself? You know, again, it comes down to when couples find out that they're pregnant, if they were hoping to become pregnant um, and coming to terms with that new reality. And if you just think it through the process, I remember, you know, myself when finding out you're becoming pregnant, you're instantly, your mind psychologically, you start preparing and, and adjusting around that. So you're thinking about, you know, you're counting forward the months and we're going to be having a baby at this particular time and what will the weather be like? And if you have bigger events you would be imagining yourself having a baby there potentially at those events and so you're really starting to your mind and your identity is starting to shift around that reality of potentially that you'll have that child with you or be in that stage of pregnancy and so then when um, pregnancy loss occurs at whatever stage suddenly that is such a shock to the system and it's readjusting all those expectations and those plans and those um, those hopes that you might have already built up and that is part of that loss experience and then really having to to go back and start again and come to terms with that reality. 
And the same is true um, with other types of grief or loss that you might experience from other things that can happen. Not only the birth, if you had a traumatic birth, that can lead to feelings of loss around not having the ideal birth experience and feelings of grief that you didn't have the birth experience that you hoped for or wanted. But also some couples might find out at ultrasound that the results from their, their being diagnosed with congenital anomalies, for example, and there might be unexpected news about the child and the growth and development of their fetus and having to come to to terms with that and what that means and that their hopes and expectations of what they thought this would be is not quite as they expected. So then coming to terms with that and whether that involves making a decision about whether to continue with the pregnancy and then that of course can lead to feelings of grief and guilt as well. So there's it just shows that this whole process, this whole journey of becoming a parent is so filled with challenges that are often not spoken about and take us to places that we've never experienced before. It's not like there's other things in your life that you said, oh, yes, well, I can draw on a past experience. It's all new. It's all the first time. And even, you know, if you might have experienced losses in the past, people then might prepare themselves by not investing too much emotion or getting too excited in a subsequent pregnancy after they've experienced a loss for fear of having to go through that process again. So they almost try and protect themselves. Now that there is a range of organizations, like there's Red Nose, there's Sands, there's Pink Elephants, great organizations that really talk about grief and loss and you can access peer support or support from professionals to help you move through that grieving process. It is so much more important that we have those services there and people know about those services if you are struggling. But just knowing that you're not the only one going through this can also provide reassurance and give you hope that you'll be able to move forward through this and and come to terms with that grief and be able to move forward through that grieving process. And while it's totally normal to worry or feel anxious and sad at times, if these feelings don't dissipate, Dr. Hyatt says it may have turned into a condition. We all know what it's like to feel worried or anxious about a particular situation, like you're going to get up and do some public speaking. We know what those, you know, it's very physical feelings. Your heart is racing, you might have a dry mouth, it's... You can feel the bug pulsating uh, through you because your, your body is preparing for what we call the flight or fight response to get you through a particular situation or a stressful event. But after that stressful event has passed, so you finish the speech and you're sitting back down, for example, those feelings of anxiety which dissipate on their own. But an anxiety condition is when people start to experience these sort of physical symptoms which are ongoing and they don't go away and they're not really associated with any particular real stressful event that's you know occurring to you. So what often happens is when you're experiencing these feelings, those physical feelings, you start to then try and understand why am I feeling like this? So this then starts to affect the way that you think and the way you interpret these symptoms. So part of anxiety is then starting to have beliefs or thoughts about things being more catastrophic or dangerous than they really are. So you start what we call misattributing or having catastrophic thoughts. So worrying about things which in reality are really not that dangerous or you're investing or worrying beyond what is really naturally able to be expected. So for example, in the antenatal period, people might worry about germs or hygiene and I think for some in you're worrying that this is going to have a really negative effect on the baby and then this might then influence your behavior so you then might engage in lots of hand washing or to try and then alleviate those feelings of anxiety. Um, some people might develop anxious thoughts about other things like you know in the postnatal period worrying about the baby that the baby is going to pass away or something so going and checking on the baby all the time or worrying about hygiene all the time so this is where anxiety it begins to get to that point that it starts really 
really impacting on your ability to function because you've got that constant worry all the time. And so part of treatment for these conditions, number one is to identify the way that you're feeling and the way that you're thinking and how the way that you're thinking is contributing to those feelings because it can become like this cycle of worrying thoughts, behaviours and anxious thinking and then that can continue on. So if you're feeling like that constantly, it might come and go, but if it lasts in two to four weeks or more, this ongoing worry or apprehension, then this is a sign of an anxiety condition. The good treatments are really about helping you to identify those thoughts and fears or worries uh, that you might be having and really teach you to objectively look at, well, what is the likelihood of that really happening and what is that really realistic? Is that a rational thought? And this is what we call cognitive behaviour therapy. It's a t- one type of treatment which is really about targeting those thoughts, the feelings and the behaviours and learning to get control, getting control back over those anxious or worrying thoughts and that over time can then alleviate those feelings of anxiety. Now for some people the anxiety is so overwhelming that they can't even think rationally and they won't even be able to engage in that sort of cognitive therapy. In those cases people might need to bring those physical feelings of anxiety under control through medication and that can really manage the physical symptoms and then um, after that we'd always recommend the psychological treatments which really about teaching the strategies to get those worrying thoughts and behaviors under control. Now depression in the same way it although the feelings are very very different so unlike anxiety which makes you feel very um, overly alert and you know ever vigilant and on edge depression can leave you feeling very sad or down or not having interest or getting pleasure out of anything. But again, the the way that you feel can affect the way that you look at the world around you. So for someone with depression, their experience of life is it's very negative. They're not getting any pleasure out of anything. So they can begin to look at things in a very negative way. So even if someone said something quite neutral, you will always see that in a very negative way if you're experiencing depression because that really reflects your personal inner experience about how you're viewing things and what you're experiencing. So part of the treatment of depression in the same way is about getting people to question, well, is that really such a negative situation or is that really a negative comment that someone's made and really rationalise it again and look at the evidence to get control over those negative thoughts and give people also alongside that, getting them involved in things that can give them pleasure because part of depression having lack of energy and motivation or pleasure in anything, you start to withdraw from everything because you're not getting anything positive and you just don't have that energy. So part of the treatment of depression as well is about really exposing yourself to situations that can give you pleasure as well as challenging the thoughts and then that over time can give you the opportunities to start to get control over the negative thinking but also start to get pleasure back from uh, situations that you previously never got any satisfaction or pleasure from. And again, like with anxiety, if the depression is very severe or moderate to severe, in some cases, it might be necessary to look at medical treatments in the first instance to help get those feelings under control and then engage in the psychological treatments to really give you those skills and strategies to manage the thoughts and feelings that really are part and parcel of these different conditions. I hope all these chats help so you can find whatever works for you. Whether it be creating those boundaries with people who try to offload their anxieties onto you, even if it is from well-meaning family, or naming that voice in your head Frank and telling them to fuck off, like I learnt when I interviewed Aussie singer Claire Bowditch, or heading to great online sources like cope.org.au and finding professional help when those thoughts start taking over your life. And while we're talking honestly about our worries... 
I've got to say, I am slightly shitting myself that my C-section is going to be scheduled earlier than my due date, which means less time to get all these podcast episodes out before the baby comes. Anyway, I'm sure I'll work it out somehow. And thank you for sticking by me while I do. On the next episode, we're talking about preparing for the main event, childbirth, and what we can do both physically and mentally. Because if it hasn't hit you yet, the only way for that baby to go is out. Until then, visit holyshitimpregnant.com for all the resources and show notes and to contact me if you have any questions. I'd love to hear from you. And if you enjoyed this podcast, a massive thank you in advance for subscribing, rating and sharing with your friends. The more we talk about what's going on for each of us, the more empowered we'll feel to do pregnancy our own way. See you next time. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.